For September 4th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 479. What is musical chairs but a Game of Thrones? This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together and when we're watching our favorite things, our favorite TV shows this week. And uh, nothing makes it better than watching together and talking about it together. Uh, I'm Matt Rather, and this week my smart, funny friends are a podcast regular, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Do I have to call you Matt, rather? <laughs> and uh, a, br- a veritable brotherhood without banners of guest podcasters, uh, but former Game of Thrones recappers on, uh, on Overthinking It, Mr. Ben Adams. Hello, Ben. Hello, Matt. And Mr. Jordan Stokes. Hello, Jordan. Glad to be here. It's wonderful to have you guys. Uh, it's, like the, uh, it's like the old days of doing the, the Game of Thrones recaps, though you can find our complete Game of Thrones coverage uh, in you know, just the depth that you've come to expect from overthinking it in our Game of Thrones Unlocked series, which will be linked up from the show notes to this episode. Uh, fair warning, all spoilers, all seasons of Game of Thrones and uh, the entire book series up to this point, though the show has passed beyond the books. And uh, that has been a cause for some concern among the internet commentariat talking about it. Uh, things like playing fast and loose with travel time, with geography. Seems like Euron's fleet can pretty much leapfrog Re- Westeros without having to to sail all the way down around Dorne and all the way back again. Uh, ravens and people seem to go uh, pretty quickly uh, across the land. And uh, this, this leads to a, um, I don't know, a charge, I guess, is, is maybe the right word, that, that the show has abandoned some of the unconventional things and certainly the kind of the allegiance to, uh, the allegiance to reality over, well, quote-unquote reality, a kind of realistic, a kind of realism, uh, a kind of sensual and sensuous realism over the um, heroic tropes of of high fantasy uh, that has manifested itself in a lot of ways. Ben, you had some thoughts about this uh, as we were preparing uh, to talk about Game of Thrones. So, so why don't you kick us off? I mean, is it what's 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 wrong with good triumphing over evil for a change? I mean, I'll start by saying I don't think there is anything wrong with it, but I'll but I'll backtrack and say I've seen this argument a lot, and I want to do the argument justice. So I'll, I'll give kind of the best version I've heard, which is that you know the purpose of Game of Thrones and what people like about Game of Thrones is that it's supposed to be this total subversion of traditional fantasy tropes, like Aragorn, the good king who rules forever. Like that's not how this story is supposed to end, and. That appears to be the story that we're getting set up here with John and Danny getting together. Uh, you know, they get to be you know rulers together and they're going to defeat the Night King, defeat Cersei, take the Iron Throne, rule the land forevermore uh, with all of their lovely incest babies. Uh, and people are worried <laughs> that this is going to kind of somehow undermine the you know, moral grayness of the series thus far. Uh, and I'm not convinced that that's really a problem because it, this is definitely a show that's more about the journey than the destination, at least for me. But uh, I, I wanted to throw that concern, that argument out and, and see what people thought about it. 
I will say that I called this like a way, way back. There's a piece of mine on the site called A Game of Thrones and the Aesthetics of Fascism, where I pretty much <laughs> called that uh, that Danny is going to be a problem uh, for for that kind of storytelling, like back back in season one or two or something like that. Because what are you going to do? She's uh, she's the violet-eyed last scion of a dying race. There's a limited number of stories you can tell about that character, um, and her just sort of like you know deciding to uh, to to open a brothel with Littlefinger or something like that didn't strike me as being in the cards. So if you're not going to kill her off real quick, then eventually she's going to be the last, uh, you know, the, the, the last uh, whatever standing, and then it becomes her kind of story. And it, that, that seems to have been pretty much borne out. The last, the well, last I, Targaryen? Yeah, yes. <laughs> if- if we're plugging old articles, that there's another reason to think that, too, which is I had an old article talking about why a couple different characters were safe for the time being, pointing out that, like, just the principles of Chekhov's guns suggest that Danny in particular, we've spent six seasons with a story that if she died would be totally irrelevant. Like, yeah. if, like, if her boat had sank on the way to Westeros and she never arrived, it'd be like, wow, we watched a whole other TV show that had nothing to do with the other one we were watching. Like, literally, until she stepped foot on Westeros, she could not die. Because otherwise, her story would make no sense whatsoever being involved in the rest of this story. Yeah, I mean... And the, by the way... Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, Pete, you go. I was just saying, by the way, while Jordan was mentioning that there's a limited number of stories that you can tell that's star the violet-eyed scion of a dying race i had this whole vision of the movie kingpin with daenerys targaryen in the uh randy quaid role just flashed before my eyes (laughs) 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 where she has to be like found at dragonstone and raised to be the champion bowler and she she's got talent but she just doesn't understand the culture And, and, and then finally she has the big showdown with bill murray and it's all very dramatic and woody harrelson has one hand and it's actually just like Game of Thrones in a lot of respects. Yeah, yeah, several. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Matt, you go ahead. I was well, contributing nothing. I mean, the the idea that what what would it change if if the character of the show changes? I mean, do we attribute it to? I don't know. Pete had a, a really wonderful metaphor in one of his first uh, recap. I think in actually Pete in your first recap on Game of Thrones and and what you said. I'm going to try uh, try to uh, not to to steal your words, but I'm going to steal them now. He said in every game of musical chairs. Right. And what is musical chairs but a Game of Thrones? Uh, There's a point at which enough chairs are gone and the players are, uh, you know, uh, the the number of players is reduced to a point where the pace of the game speeds up. And it's really it's bimodal. Right. There's a threshold uh, that that is passed. It's not something that happens gradually like uh, it. it, Something happens. And uh, you said that this had happened this season um, because the kind of the number of thrones, the number of major factions, um, you know, was three now seems to be two. And uh, they're racing around circles and circles and circles and circles. and that this this kind of accounts for maybe some of the breakneck pace of this uh, of this season. I mean, the the thing that I noticed was the was uh, you know not necessarily not necessarily a uh, a creeping high uh, high fantasy sort of sentimental romanticism, but beyond uh, but beyond that a um, 
an increase in pace, like an increase in, in just sort of event, 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 without a lot of the, the texture, which we've talked a lot about is in terms of George R. R. Martin's artistic project of kind of making the sensory reality of the Middle Ages present to you through fantasy writing. Um, that's the texture of the books. The, there was a texture of kind of, of atmosphere, of mise-en-scene, of, of like, you know, uh, living through time that, that was in the show that seems now to be, uh, to be sacrificed in favor of, um, in favor of like a lot of incident, a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of kind of like entrances and exits. It becomes like a 19th century play, like a well-made play where like tension is, tension is not kind of built slowly tension is it just kind of erupts through the the stage management of of entering and exiting characters and reunions and reconfigurations uh and uh and things like that i mean that's the thing that that i noticed uh being different but it it i mean the the musical chairs theory the fenzelian the the fenzelian chairs um you know it, it seemed to account for that to me anyway I think another way to look at it is if you think about a board game, uh, which this season was was uh, replete with a lot of board game. Literally, I think both sides, I think in the war, had a b- big board where they were pushing pieces around on. But if you've ever gotten to like the end stage of a game of Monopoly, which I know lots of people have never bothered getting to the end of the game of Monopoly, <laughs> if you do, uh, there's a certain point in the game where you stop paying small rents. Like, I don't know if you've ever got to that point where we're like, you've got your hotels on your big properties. You all have like, you know, a decent amount of money uh, where the point where, you know, paying four dollars for Baltic for uh, Baltic Avenue is not going to change at all. So you're not going to bother pulling out the one dollar bills. Actually, at that point of the game, you've just got like five hundreds and one hundreds. And you're really just like picking up the dice as fast as you can roll them and jumping the pieces around until you land on boardwalk. Okay, and then the game's over. Uh, so I think that we may be in, in something similar to that stage of the game or like an, an end game of chess where there's only so many moves that both sides can make. And in Game, of, the, yeah. in game of Thrones, everybody's rents are dead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love would, the oh, – go ahead. Oh, I would just also say that uh, I think the show needed that. Like I was beginning to get really, really tired of entire seasons where people just kind of like uh, – sort of thought about maybe doing something and traveled from uh from from iceland to spain and back or something like that so the the amount of stuff that happened this season was maybe my favorite thing about it yeah and and this is a great comparison i love the monopoly rent comparison to the musical chairs comparison because it's not just that the game gets faster but that the things that happen get more violent that your opportunities to do things that are harmless diminish, and thus your opportunities to do things that are harmful and risk relationships go up. And so everything is on the line. So you're throwing haymakers now. People just get stabbed out in the open. Somebody's nephew is taking an elbow to the face. It's just very unfortunate. Uh, and then Monopoly, that talk about Monopoly, of course. We don't kill, <laughs> right, exactly. We don't kill, like, uh, uh, we don't kill the lord of the phrase. We kill all the phrase. The whole room, the whole room full of phrase there's there's a sort of escalation there's an inflation uh and then no one will ever mention it again 
<laughs> yeah, like like no one no one in the north or the south seems to be like what happened to all the phrase and but and and you know uh, secondarily who's guarding the twins now right like who's controlling the neck the strategically super important uh, geographical feature between the 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 south and the north uh, there's I been, like to believe yeah. that uh, the phrase were so universally disliked that literally everyone thinks that they're still there and they just haven't heard from them and they're seeing how long they can ride that out <laughs> like they haven't called uh, that's great no free news they, is good every, free news everybody's figured out that they're dead but it's like the trash can in the shared apartment that nobody wants to take out so everybody's just kind of <laughs> pretending that they're there because whoever discovers them has to like deal with the problem afterwards so they're just right. like nope nope the t- phrase yep they're still in the twins. Only, only the male phrase are right. dead. Maybe right? there's like a benevolent, ital- egalitarian, democratic uh, republic that's been, you know, enacted by all the Frey wives uh, who were more or less concubines, who were more or less like trapped, you know, imprisoned there against their will. And that they actually, when everybody kills everybody uh, and the Night King is either defeated or else, you know, be the, it is this uh, uh, cadre of women who will actually form the basis of the new society that that spreads across the world every so often they're sending out a raven with like literally in quotes something an asshole would say <laughs> the, the, the masters are like that we have a message from the phrase it's, it's something an asshole would say and the lannisters <laughs> like checks out <laughs> uh, the, the uh i hope anyone everyone else recognizes the really harsh irony of aria making this move to kill the male phrase and spare the female phrase is an act of empowerment, but then leaving them isolated and locked away in a house where they have to clean up a terrible mess left by all the men. <laughs> that's like, their, that's their job now. So it's, it's actually like, uh, it's, it's the contrapasso of, of being a fray woman. You know, you, you can't win. You can't win. <laughs> um, well, is it, I mean, uh, the, the show, I, I don't know. It seems like these are some these are some changes, but I think there's a metatextual change as well, Pete, that that you're interested in, which is that like the show is super popular now. Do you feel like that's had? Well, I, I suppose it always was super popular. It, it had decent ratings. I mean, it didn't get seven seasons. I mean, you know, HBO is not in the business of like being a storytelling charity, right? If people weren't watching it or weren't subscribing to HBO, they would have taken it off the air. But it seems like it's everywhere now, uh, and it's just this kind of lumbering, lumbering beast in, in a way that that it was not exactly under the radar, but was allowed to be um, a little more not exactly subversive but what do i mean uh, it, it was allowed to subvert expectations um a little more and now has this sort of uh, accumulated weight of expectations that it itself has engendered and can't can't really subvert i don't know do you feel like the the massive popularity of it has changed the storytelling in in some way i do but i feel like it's done the opposite of what you described in that I feel like it's removed some some of the constraints that the show had previously operated under and has freed up the show and reduced the degree of expectation that's in play. And th- that is part of what has made the plot so different and the, f- the feeling of it so different. I'll use Arya and the phrase as an example. Arya kills all the phrase. This is a super 
badass moment, and everybody is super happy that Arya has done this. Unless you're like, oh wow, she just murdered a whole bunch of people. That's really horrifying. But you know, I I believe that my fiance's comment at the time was, "Can Arya be president?" Like that was amazing, right? <laughs> is that like, oh wow, such <laughs> such decisive action in the face of such assholery? And then Arya goes on and she meets Ed Sheeran, and she has regrets about violence and and death, and she doesn't want to kill them. And then she go, goes on to the wolf, and she's like, oh, it's the wolf. Oh, we're going to be friends. We're going to be friends. No, we're not going to be friends. Oh, okay. And then she goes home, and she's going to be mean to Sansa, and she's going to be nice to Sansa. And what is Arya going to do? We don't know what Arya's going to do. If you think of each of these beats, they only work if you're already invested in who Arya is. And if you're already – not only that, but if you're already rooting for Arya to win <laughs> – as, as sort of like as in you're seeing the the show as a competition, and each each time that Arya makes a choice, there's a sense of of, of excitement and of of relief and and joy, or of sort of like threat and worry for her. Uh, it, it's no longer about whether Arya's story as, as a sort of whole or even episodically is is beautiful or has a sort of poetry and lyric to it. it. It's really invested in this idea that we care what happens to Arya. And and more than that, like we want Arya to win and that if she sort of approaches things from different directions, we don't really mind because we're more inter- invested in her winning than we are in whatever happens to be happening at her, to her at the time. Nobody cares that Ed Sheeran never comes back. Nobody cares that Hot Pie's only there for one scene. Nobody cares I, about any of these things. Oh, do you I care? cared that Hot Pie didn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, what it reminds me of is pro wrestling, where John Cena can come out and rap and, and then wrestle, and then he can come back later and, like, be the guy who's doing all the Make-A-Wish Foundation stuff and wrestle, and he can come back and get in, like, a sort of junkyard brawl with Eddie Guerrero and wrestle, more than until I join him. And, uh, and, and while the character of John Cena is not consistent, uh, and the sort of, uh, whether he's on the ups or on the downs of John Cena is not consistent, what is consistent is all of the people who identify who John Cena is throughout all these things and, and decide whether they want to cheer for him, whether he wins or loses. And I felt like the narrative kind of shifted in that direction, especially this season, where it was all about like who's gonna who's gonna get whom, who's gonna win what, and as people were getting sort of put over or uh, by other people, and and oh, this person's the hero now, and this person's great now, and like like Theon getting kicked in the groinless, and then him sort of finding his strength is a total pro wrestling move. Where now he gets put over, and it's like, oh man, we're so excited! He's going to totally win. This is so great. But it doesn't have anything to do with with a sort of multi generational quasi historical fantasy epic. It's much more about a, a sort of kayfab performance competition uh, where you're trying yeah. to see who can win. I wonder, kind of to push back on that a little bit. Do you feel like maybe in season one, when Sean Bean was there, that you felt that way about Sean Bean on account of him being Sean Bean? Oh, and yeah. being like substantially more famous than most of the other people who are in the room. Oh, yeah, totally. You totally feel that way about Sean Bean, that you want Sean Bean to win against all of the other people. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. And he's in a and lot of movies where he does that, too. And he also <laughs> always loses. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert for yeah. Goldeneye? <laughs> for Boromir? Yeah. <laughs> but and I, and I feel like also going back to that early season that like something of this has always always kind of hovered around Daenerys because she's off in her own corner of the plot where there's a sense that she's sort of the only character that matters on that side of the ocean but but that it does feel a little bit weird to be doing that in Westeros proper now 
that that uh, that now that Daenerys's life is impacted by and impacts the lives of all of the other major players, why we are so sort of solitarily invested in Daenerys's own personal prosperity, or more more that. Uh... Uh, for a while, when you had you'd have scenes where it was like you know Tyrion and Varys and Littlefinger going at it on the small council or something like that, right? Yeah. And what was interesting there is not who wins, but kind of like the the Machiavellian uh, world that's being depicted or something like that, or or even just like the witty banter is is the the beauty of it. Um, but that stuff seems to have been swept away, and now we're left with these sort of like these moral titans. I feel like they they kind of tried to do this a little bit. Uh, in seasons past, and it didn't always work. Like I felt like the um, the Battle of the Bastards. I remember I, I was really annoyed by that whole whole thing at the time, kind of because it felt pro wrestlingy. Like yeah. you're you're just like hitting John with a chair until eventually he's going <laughs> to get up and and like kick out of it and pin the guy. Right? Oh um, my God! Is that the Veils music? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little figure out of nowhere. <laughs> That kind of thing, right? And and I didn't want that. I wanted like some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of very carefully observed thing about uh, the the effect of uh, of pike infantry on a cavalry charge in in the twelfth century or something like that. <laughs> I, I wanted Genoese crossbowmen to be the deciding military technology, but they weren't interested in that. They were already in kind of more of a pro wrestling space, and I feel like at this point. That's that's fine with me. Like it, it's no longer bothering me. Maybe because uh, some of those characters that that lived in the more realistic sort of world are just gone now. So Tyrion's a good example of a character that's been flattened out a lot since season one, like probably the most of any character because season one Tyrion is great because he starts off and you think he's going to be one of the bad guys because he's a Lannister uh, and he's fighting for the Lannisters quite effectively in, in many points in the first season or, you know, early seasons of uh, the show. And then throughout it, you kind of get root for him by the battle of the Blackwater. You're kind of rooting for Tyrion, even though he's helping the Lannisters out just because you don't want like the city to get sacked. Uh, But then like his journey of killing his father and his journey, you know, joining up with Danny. And now he's like his basically only role is to be like her, you know, the angel sitting on her shoulder. Uh, you know, in fact, they've even removed what made Tyrion fun, which was a lot of his cleverness. Uh, I mean, part of the season was trying to subvert it is that his clever plan gets him in trouble. Uh, but like one of the things I noticed was that, you know, Tyrion's whole point is that he knows Westeros. Like that's that's his thing is that he knows Westeros and can help Danny out with that. I don't think it ever comes into play at all this season. <laughs> Like, he doesn't provide her any information that, like, the map of Westeros doesn't already provide her. <laughs> he tries. Well, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, also, the map of Westeros no longer matters because everyone can teleport. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, he tries but, no, to I mean, tell her. Yeah, go for it. That, that he does try, and they kind of tease it happening a couple of times. Like, it seemed like right at the end he knew his sister well enough to make the negotiation succeed, but then that turned out to be the show, like, sort of playing fast and loose with character motivations. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that Tyrion serves a, a practical purpose other than to to be the better angel of Danny's nature. It would be fun if there was, like, a, a solidly evil advisor that, that he could uh, try to subvert, but it doesn't seem like that's happening. I'm trying to imagine that would be great. If like just if Masande is just sort of like you should. I'm really tired of these people. You should just start killing all of them. 
<laughs> well, I mean, that is, I mean, that is certainly, that is certainly a change because it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. I mean, I like the idea of like, there, there were sort of, I, I guess there were sort of three centers, right? Like North, South and East, uh, that, that we thought were, and we thought that there, it was a little more complicated than that, but it actually, it actually wasn't. Uh, it was North, South and East and Dorne doesn't matter. And some of the infighting in the North doesn't matter. And the Tyrells ultimately don't matter. And the veil ultimately doesn't really matter. It's, it's this. And so now we are, I mean, I think it's a, I don't know. I, I would sort of say that the, the, uh, the quality that we're talking, the, the kind of pro wrestling equality that we're talking about here has to do with the kind of the, the accumulated tonnage of, of storytelling behind these people rather than like, oh, if the show, if the show were less popular, you know, uh, if the show were less popular, it wouldn't be free to kind of stage these, um, to, to sort of stage these, uh, what confrontations, these sort of one-on-one, uh, one-on-one confrontations. And you definitely, it, it's, it's this sort of, a accumulated tonnage of the time that that you've spent with these characters and i feel like it's it's i don't know it's sort of the same i'm trying to i mean i'm trying to think of a show that's that's comparable where you've spent this this much time with people and i guess like uh where there's like a political element to it i guess the west wing maybe though that's not the uh, you know that because of the way that shook out with a big change halfway through that that didn't quite um unfold like that like is it is it pete is it popularity specifically uh that's done this or does does something else account for it or could it well so that's two questions one one thing is i would compare it a bit to buffy the vampire slayer oh sure show sure yeah because by the end of it they can do all sorts of crazy stuff at the beginning there has to be a sort of overarching mystery and there has to be kind of constraints on the world and you can't have outright confrontations between the major characters because uh it, things things the story would not function if you were to do that if in the first episode buffy and the master just face off and actually i don't even remember if buffy and the master even do this in the first maybe they do maybe there's like a prequel where buffy and the master face off at random in the first episode but uh but there would be no there would be no point to it there would be no investment in it and the idea is you spend years and years with them, and then by the end you can do the musicals and you can do the nonsense, and you can have Spike even exist as a character who just who does not fit in the reality of the first seasons of the show at all, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but I would say that the thing that makes the popularity about it useful is that um, that you have people talking about the show outside of actually watching the show, uh, talking about. How they, who they think they want to have win, what they think is happening, uh, what they think might happen, and I wonder if without that investment in the back end, it would get you get more tired of the show much faster. Without that sort of like every week we're going to all talk about it at, at work, uh, you're going to talk about it. It's a, it's actually kind of a fun feeling that I haven't had in a lot of years to actually be in public places like to feel like i could get on a bus and i could just say a random thing about game of thrones and somebody could totally pick up on it i mean i haven't felt that way since i regularly watched sports center which was a long time ago uh, when they before they even really talked about contract negotiations that's how long ago it was uh, but yeah it's um so it's that it's that side action of like oh maybe this character could do this and maybe this character could do this and then you end up doing a lot of the work of the show for it because the show is not really telling you the 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 big thing that I think the show did 
that uh, confounds the most is that it changed the rules on whether you can assume something happened based on whether you've seen any evidence of it happening, is what I would say. As in, like, um, you might have, you say, well, you know, three weeks went by, and they they went from here to here, and and they're not going to show you all the boring parts. This must have happened while they were doing it. And, And you come up with sort of rationalizations for why the events play out the way that they do that have to do with imagining scenes that happened that you didn't see, and the only purposes of these scenes that you didn't see is not to be mysterious, but merely to shorten the amount of time of the story. Mm. And and this is a, a different sort of thing, because if there were a significant sort of development and you didn't hear about it, that would be important. Or if you did hear about it, that would be important. <laughs> And and the idea that you could just sort of assume significant things are happening and you're not hearing about it and you can just sort of write it off as fine is like a big change. And I just I just feel like the audience is symbiotic in making that change can, work. Can you give me a specific example of like a scene that we didn't see that the audience filled in? Oh yeah, sure. So um, so the Lannisters approach Highgarden. And the Tyrell men are defending Highgarden, the, the knights in, in Highgarden, and the Lannisters walk up to Highgarden. And what follows is like a Monty Python-esque elision, wherein the next shot is Jamie Lannister like piling up a whole bunch of bodies, right? And uh, and of course we are thinking, how did they get in the castle? How did they how did they get past the giant walls of the castle? How did they uh, you know lift the ladders up and 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 do that? And and did they? Did, it wasn't a siege because they. They had to have gotten it done really fast, right? Because all the other events are happening. And then the Elysian is sort of like, dude, they're the best army. They just said they were the best army. They fought a battle and they won. You know, like, like why, why do you, why do you even need to talk about this? Why, why is this something you even care about? Like, oh well, clearly they could have had, like, they could have had ladders and just put the ladders up against the wall and climbed over the wall, and maybe they didn't defend it. Maybe they could have built a tunnel. There's any number of ways that the Lannisters could have taken that castle. Which is, and, in, I mean, this is an interesting feature that, that you're talking about because, to a certain extent, the outcome wasn't. The outcome was certain, right? And yeah. it's like, the outcome was certain, your expectation is that the outcome was certain, and your expectation is rewarded. That, in fact, the outcome that you thought was certain is the thing that happened. Which is different from the way Game of Thrones has operated up to this point, right? Which is like, the outcome is certain, you know the outcome is certain, we've told you the outcome is certain, and OMG Red Wedding! <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, that's that's been its stock and trade uh, up to this point, which is, I guess, why I I, I talked about the the kind of the the effects of the the recent season being a kind of flattening, um, you know, rather than rather than being a, a, a weirdening. Though I definitely see the point that, that you make about the weirdening um, of of uh, of the universe here. One one more example, I think, of one of these scenes that we didn't see that I think we definitely would have seen in the previous seasons is Grey Worm and the Unsullied coming from Lannisport to King's Landing. Like they take the last thing we saw of Grey Worm was taking Lannisport on the other side of the continent. And then all of a sudden he's just assembled in, in full regalia. Like he just like, like, like they're next door to each other. Like it's just next door neighbors, as opposed to like fighting across a hostile continent, uh, you know, like Xenophon's 10,000. No, they just, they just walked. Like, yeah. Apparently they just they just walked and nobody stopped them for whatever reason. Or they did. They just they took heavy losses and there's a lot less unsullied than there than there used to be. But you know that's not really germane to to the Dragon Council. So you know. Yeah. 
I like to think there was a scene where Ed Sheeran was watching the army go by and had a raven with a note attached to it and had to consider whether he should let the raven fly and betray his own position but notify the Lannisters that the Unsullied were coming or whether he should hold on to the raven and remain alive. Uh, and then he could sing a song about it. But then his song would reveal his position. He'd get a crossbow bolt to the face. Uh, not the <laughs> see this is the kind of extended universe like character filling in that a solid fan community will do for you like pete i, I want to subscribe to your live journal to hear more about this <laughs> it's great it's mostly ed sheeran based game of thrones fan fiction uh the, i invent a whole character for neil haran for not haran, like, like oddly romantic rival <laughs> your, your ed sheeran insert game of thrones fan fiction started in the first season so you were real excited when he actually oh, yeah. showed up. <laughs> That's a one in a million shot, man. I actually made a lot of money in Vegas. I put down a bunch of money. Actually, back in 1997, I said, when this book is made into a TV show, there's this guy, and his name's going to be Ed Sheeran. He's yeah, going to be yeah. a white soul singer from Britain, and he's going to play a soldier in this movie. And this and this TV show. that he, Yeah, he, by the way, hasn't been born yet. Right. <laughs> or I guess he had. He was he's what, 20, uh, 26. All right. He's he's a child now. But but once he is fully pubescent, uh, you know, his his crooning voice will will, I don't know, make Maisie Williams very happy. Let me let me throw it. Oh, go for it, Jordan. You go for it. Yeah, um, so I have a, a question uh, relevant to um, to things that the audience has to fill in. Right, uh, which is the thing that's been bothering me the most at the end of the season, and really at the end of like all of the seasons that we've watched. What was Littlefinger's actual plan? I was going to bring this up too. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> okay, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm really curious about this because like Sansa uh, is doing the like the, the Hercule Poirot thing where she's like laying out everything that Littlefinger has done and all of his motivations for doing it. But when she gets to the part where she's going to talk about the motivation, she doesn't actually provide one for him. Uh, she basically says like, you know, and then of course there's your motivation. You're really, really evil uh, <laughs> is what it, what it amounts to, right? She's like, that's what you do. You turn people against each other. You turned my mother and her sister against each other. You're trying to turn me and Arya against each other. And now I'm going to stab you. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't ask him why were you doing all of this evil stuff? Uh, she doesn't seem to care particularly. Or rather, she, she acts as if she knows, and that, that is the sufficient explanation. But I'm not really clear on it. Like, there are certain things that he's done over the course of the, the series that definitely make sense. And there are some that, like, maybe you could imagine them making sense if he had some very, very elaborate endgame that it was all building towards. As described, his character ought to have had a contingency plan, you know, that was something that he really meant to be accomplishing with all of these things. And I was really looking forward to figuring out what that actually was. It doesn't seem, at this point given the amount of time that this show has typically been spending with, with dead people and their interests, that we're ever going to hear anything more about what was, what was going on with Littlefinger. So do you guys have any idea about what was happening there? You know, Jordan, when I... Uh, I play a little game when I'm trying to imagine uh, what would fill a plot hole. And that's, I, I assume, the worst. <laughs> you, you assume that it's a, a polar bear monster that lives in the jungle yeah. oh yeah because i was about to say smoke monster but yeah there you go it's a, it's a it, the whole thing is an experiment uh and also kind of heaven but kind of not um the uh, yeah i i mean i think that that it's just like 
he was i mean do you believe him when he says do you believe him when he was trying to sell uh, santa uh last season on the idea that like he's trying to uh he's trying to get himself onto the iron throne and that like because he definitely has the full-on creepy uncle vibe um you know he would like uh santa his child bride b- beside him i don't i mean that if that's, that's, yeah, I, that's I mean, what, so so i think the most charitable explanation for Littlefinger is at the beginning, I think you have to assume it really is just like chaos for chaos sakes. Like there's this great, uh, it's a great Alexander Hamilton quote about, uh, you know, that someone wants to uh, ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. Like he's down low on the ladder. And so he knows that just by stirring things up among the major houses, like he can move up. He doesn't know how far he can move up. But that's at the beginning. I don't think that explains everything up to the end, because, again, as the number of pieces on the board go down, like that becomes less and less of a viable option. So I think at the end, you have to assume his plan was to both marry Sansa and get Sansa on a throne, probably not the (laughs) Iron Throne, but like a throne, like clearly a lot of his actions were aimed at getting Sansa to be queen in the north as opposed to Jon Snow. And then if he can marry Sansa, great. The problem with that is there is no reason whatsoever to believe that Sansa would ever agree to marry him under any circumstances whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) And like, he has no, and if that was the plan, they needed to cash that out. Like I, I would have loved to have seen the end where Sansa like maybe leads him on in that respect. As, as like a way of getting like lulling him into complacency, but they don't again, this is me doing the work for them that this is doesn't actually appear in the show anywhere. <laughs> I mean, so, the the thing that I w- the thing that I was going to say about it is if you believe that uh, wh- what he tells Santa, like the, the idea is to sort of uh, the idea is to sort of remove other power other power centers. And I mean, it was clear, I think, from them watching Brienne practicing in the you know uh, uh, practicing with Arya in in the yard at Winterfell that like that she she suddenly was a threat in a way that that you know, she hadn't been, she hadn't been before. And so like getting rid of her was, was more immediate. I mean, I think he wasn't in the middle of his master plan. I think he was in the middle of a, like of a small side quest, uh, that was necessary to, that was necessary to the larger plan of sort of securing, securing power for himself as the, the dwindling number of players on the board increased the speed of the game. Although if, if he, I mean, yes and no, because Someone being rather good at at sword fighting doesn't really make them a threat to Littlefinger, you know. Like that that's not the the stage that he operates on. Uh, he doesn't know from the fact that she is good at sword fighting that she can see through his manipulations, right? Uh, she's certainly no more of a threat than Brienne is, right, or any other number of uh, of knights that they have sort of sitting around. Uh, Littlefinger isn't going to be able to take them in a fight if it comes to it, right? Like, uh, you know, Waymar Royce or whatever he is, the, uh, the, the head knight of the Vale is as much of a threat as Arya in that sense. And then if he does decide that Arya as a threat needs to be eliminated like why make sansa do it herself why not why not just stick a knife in her in a corridor somewhere right uh he's got it he must have a couple of lannister knives around certainly there are people out there who want Arya stark dead right um 
And like I have, I have like a very uncharitable explanation, which is that the show is just sort of juicing up tension for the sake of juicing up tension. I suppose if I was going to like to try to do their work for them, I would say that maybe the most consistent motivation for Littlefinger is to imagine that like he actually just wants to like to torture and degrade Sansa in a way that has to do with like. Uh, you know, psychosexually paying back uh, Caitlin Stark for not choosing him when he was young. So that, like, consciously or not, he needs to have Sansa be the one to kill Arya because that would degrade Sansa for it to happen, you know? And, like, he might not be aware of this himself, but he that's why he does this convoluted and ultimately fatal plan, is because it's all about kind of, like, having this bird in a cage which he can then torment in various ways. But I think, again, like, that's that seems like a motivation that would explain a lot of the stuff that he does, especially in the later seasons, but it's not something that you ever see him really exhibiting. And, uh, I don't know. This is, I was wondering if any, anyone else had sort of like picked up that thread of it, but from, from what you guys are talking about, I guess maybe not. Well, this I, may I just think, be... no, it's not just you. Uh, so I look, can I, can I do my, can I show my work? Can I show my work to you, Jordan? <laughs> go go. Okay, so let's review. So Peter Baelish <laughs> Peter Baelish is a kid from he's a he's a minor noble. His dad makes friends with Hoster Tully, the father of Catelyn and Lysa Tully and Edmure Tully, who has ceased to exist due to some sort of temporal anomaly or something. Um, and he makes his dad makes friends with him during the war, and Peter Baelish gets to be fostered at their house. He's a teenager there, he meets Cat and Lysa, he's in love with Cat, but he sleeps with Lysa. He's drunk and he thinks he slept with Cat. Uh, Lysa, so he he thinks that he took Cat's virginity and he thinks he's destined to be with Cat. Uh, Lysa gets pregnant. Lysa gets an abortion, and then uh, Brandon Stark is going to get betrothed to Catelyn Stark, and Peter Baelish challenges him to a duel and loses and gets like almost cut in half, right? And so from there, you know, Brandon Stark gets burned alive. The Starks get you know his dad gets burned alive. The war happens. Peter Baelish gets a job. First working for the Tullys, then working for Tywin Lannister, and working for King Robert, where over the course of it, he introduces sophisticated accounting methods into the sort of royal ledger. It, it, to such a degree that it allows him to massively increase the crown's balance sheet and embezzle tremendous amounts of money, which he then hides through various sort of shadow or shadow organizations and accounts all over the place, all over the kingdom. He's paying off various sorts of people. His, he, he builds a huge network of brothels that he takes control of, so he has spies everywhere and he has money everywhere. And his biggest MO is to install people. He puts people in different sorts of situations. He takes control of small offices. Like uh, the, there's a whole chapter where Tyrion is kind of counting the people who work at the port, uh, and he notices which ones are working for Littlefinger and which ones are working for Varys and which ones are working for him. Uh, and Littlefinger plays this game with Varys for years and years, where they try to take control of various sorts of municipal offices, government offices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now I want to pause here and ask you guys: Do you remember Cereal Pharrell? Do you guys remember Cereal Pharrell? Yeah, uh, he's great. He's too. A totally man remembers. Great. A man remembers. Great. Sierra Farrell. Uh, and Sierra Farrell said a lot of cool stuff. But let's let's keep this in mind, right? Um, and this is also around the one thing that the show changed. There's two. There's two things the show changed that really, 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 really bother me. And uh, one of them is when Ned Stark. 
goes to Winterfell. When Nitzirk is in Winterfell and King Robert asks him to go to King's Landing, uh, in the books, Ned doesn't want to go, and Cat says that it's his duty and he has to go. And in the show, Ned... Uh, wants to go, and Kat says you can't because of your children. And I feel like that cheapens their relationship and makes it very one-dimensional and tawdry in a way that it wasn't before. And the other thing is a change to one line, which I'm building towards. So Peter Baelish has this huge network of brothels. He's been this massive embezzlement scheme. He has Lisa Lessa Aaron write a letter to Catelyn Stark to let her know the Lannisters are, tra- are conspiring against them. He has Lysa murder John Aaron uh, and throw the, the kingdom into this uh, disarray he helps lead Ned Stark on this crazy goose chase, which leads to Ned Stark planning a coup against the king and enlisting Littlefinger's help, which he refuses at the last minute, getting Ned Stark killed. He then throws in with the Lannisters, helps the uh, – uh, oh, oh, I remember. And this is where uh, Tyrion proposes to him that he could have the castle of Harrenhal, which happens to be the castle where Catelyn Stark's mother uh, is from. And and he's like, oh, I want that. And this is part of Tyrion's trick to see who's feeding information to Cersei. Okay, great. And so uh, Tyrion finds out Pacell is the mole, and the thing, the idea of getting Peter Baelish Harrenhal was always a joke. Peter Baelish never forgives this and dedicates a ton of time to undermining and killing Tyrion. Um, he then uh, brokers the peace with the Tyrells, brokers the marriage between Joffrey and Marcella, brings in the Tyrell army to beat Stannis at the Battle of the Blackwater, and after that happens, uh, and, and Stannis and um, and Joffrey is betrothed to Sansa, manages to sort of separate Sansa from Joffrey and spirit her away. And spirit her away, right? They go to the Vale. He has complex political relations with all sorts of minor nobles in the Vale. He's taking people's kids as fosters and, and wards. He's, and he's got uh, senses in disguise, right? And all this stuff happens to the point where he manages to ascend to this state of political primacy over even Sweet Robin himself, the rightful lord of the Vale. And by the way, the, the single uh, longest ruling great house leader in all of Westeros as of season eight of Game of Thrones is Sweet Robin. Uh, long live the king of Mountain and Vale. But, uh, uh, but then he has a confrontation with Lysa because Lysa sees him kiss Sansa. Lysa starts fessing up to everything that happened. Lysa starts freaking out and wants Peter to marry her and be with her for real. And, and Peter pushes her out the moon door and kills her. And this is the end of Storm of Swords. Biggest climax so far in the whole books. And and he says something. He says something to Lysa Aaron, which explains everything that he's done up until this point. And, and and in the show, in the show, it's different than it is in the books. And this is the thing that pisses me off more than anything else. In the in the show, he says, "I only ever loved one woman. It was your sister, right? Something to that effect." And then pushes her out of the window. And and in, and in and in the books, she asks him, "You know, oh, did you ever love anyone?" And he said he loved someone. Yes. And what he says when he pushes her. And you remember who I asked you to remember just a couple minutes ago? Who asked you to remember just a couple minutes ago? Uh, it was Syria Pharrell. Right. You know what he says to Lysa right before he pushes her out the window? He says, only cat. And he pushes her. So, so are you putting this together? This whole thing? You putting this all together now? What, what, was cat, cat his who is, pet? Who is Cyril <laughs> Pharrell's cat? Does anyone remember the story of Cyril Pharrell and the cat? I, I do actually. Tell the story of Cereal for All and the Cat. Chasing cats is like one of the first things that Cereal Pharrell gives uh, Arya to do in her in her sword training. 
right. catch, catching them. And the idea is if you can sneak up on a cat, you have the necessary, you know, what stealth, uh, et cetera, to be a what water dancer, right? Yeah. And there's a big story about a cat, which is that Cyril Pharrell was one of the guards in the Sea Lord of Bravos's house. And the, the, the first sword of Bravos died, and the Sea Lord of Bravos immediately brought in a bunch of people for interviews to take the job. And the, there was one test that was given to all the interviewees, and the test was that he had on his lap a creature. And he would ask each of the interviewees to describe the creature. And most of the interviewees would say that it was some exotic creature from a faraway land, and he'd never seen anything so beautiful. He must have gotten it from across the, the Sunset Sea. Uh, and, and the Sea Lord of Bravos's house is a menagerie of delights of both plant and animal nature. And so they, are, they all say that this, this thing on the Sea Lord's lap must be the greatest thing in the world. It must be something I've never seen before. And Cyril Pharrell, when he sees the Sea Lord with this animal, he says, that's a, that's a cat. That's a common house. That's like a tomcat that you got from the alley. Uh, and, uh, and because the, the uh, Cyril Pharrell is able to see for real that all that's there is a cat, he gets the job as the first sort of bravos. And this is the, the big lesson he teaches Arya. Look with your eyes. Don't see what you expect to see. Don't see what you think you ought to see. Look with your eyes, and you'll see what's there. And, and, and I mean, I, I've, I've been thinking about this with Littlefinger. When he tells Lisa, Lysa only cat, I feel like that's a really poetic callback to the cat, which, which is sort of a presence throughout the story, which Arya is always chasing, which is kind of the truth. And, and it's the empirical truth. And what that says to me is that Littlefinger's plan the whole time was all about Catelyn Stark. That was what he was doing. He wanted Cat. And everything he did was about Cat. It was just Cat. And it's crazy that somebody would go to that kind of crazy length and develop schemes of that huge nature just because of this one woman that he was in love with when he was a child. And it's nuts. But then you think about what people are actually like, and you're like, yeah, that's pretty credible. Like That, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of people would do something <laughs> like that. And, uh, and this is what Jordan was saying, which is that, uh, that his, his actions since then uh, – well, I mean, the books he hasn't really they hasn't really gone anywhere. Like they're they're still doing stuff. They haven't revealed what his plan is. He seems to have some sort of bigger plan. It probably involves the castle of Harrenhal, which he ends up owning anyway. And I think that in the books, Littlefinger wants to be king with Sansa as queen in Harrenhal, and that there are specific reasons for it. But I'm not going to get into that because that's not what it's about. It's about the show. I think what happens is that once Cat is once Cat is dead and Littlefinger kind of has Sansa in his like physical possession, he has no idea what to freaking do with her. <laughs> like, what is he supposed to do? Like, he's he's sort of come to terms with the fact that he's probably not really going to marry her and so he kind of marries her off to the boltons and that's kind of a terrible idea and he kind of admits it's a terrible idea and he kind of becomes a bit of a dad drifter where he's like watching too much history channel and lurking in the hallway looking at teenagers and it's just like this guy's a creep never nobody knows what he's doing and it's like oh man he's just in that basement all the time uh hanging out with Jon snow just provoking him and being like your your mom was really hot you know why are you saying this why are you saying this and it's because he lost his reason he lost his reason to tear he lost his reason to live which was that it was all about cat the whole time uh now i don't necessarily know again that might not be true but if we're doing this- <laughs> wait there's a long way around the barn pete for that might not be true <laughs> But if we're doing the show's work for it, I think one way we can explain it is that Peter Baelish is lost without the object of his sort of ironic, hateful 
affection, which is Catelyn Stark, and then also is kind of the idea of Sansa as the echo of Cat. And as Sansa kind of grows into a woman and becomes different from Cat, and he kind of realizes that it's not her, he's just totally, he's just totally, and he has to die. It's the only thing that can happen. And, and ironically, yeah. does everyone remember what what Arya's name was when she was blind uh, in the in the canals um, in in Bravos uh, when she was training as a faceless man? This might be just in the books, but but her name was such and such of the canals. Yeah, it was Cat. Cat of the canals. Yep. <laughs> That's uh, wow. We have. Uh, I think we've developed a, a grand unified theory of Game of Thrones that is fe- <laughs> feline in nature. Did I burn all of our time. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got no, Ben Adams on here. We've got Jordan Stokes on here. They should talk. No. Yeah. Jordan, you, what were you? Oh, sorry, Ben. Wait, ben, take it. Well, I'll, I'll add this, which is to say, while we're talking about Arya, we should talk about how criminal it was that at no point in the entire Winterfell plot. Did she actually use her face dance, like her face, you know, stealing or pulling off a bill? Like the fact that we didn't get a Mission Impossible esque, like, mask pulling off scene is just like criminal. Yeah. I was I was really hoping that at the end of the trial sequence when Littlefinger is bleeding out on the floor, that like suddenly Arya pulls off her face and it's Sansa and then Sansa pulls off her face and it's Arya. Like, <laughs> and then they each pull their face off and they're both Roderick Castle briefly before then pulling yeah. their face off. Yeah. This has no actual effect. And as he's gasping as he's as he's, you know, drowning in his own blood from the, the wound in his neck, he, he gasps, I would have got away with it too <laughs> if it weren't for you crazy kids <clears throat> and then he uh and then he expires on the floor um well i don't know ben where do you where do you want to go where do you want to go from here uh is it uh you know is it is it worth it should we continue to watch season eight I mean, I think we're pot committed at this point right <laughs> i mean I, that is basically what Game of Thrones is counting on that you know, and this has been a fun season. I mean, I think we've been we've been picking it, but it's been you know legitimately there's been a lot of really really fun moments and really neat stuff in this season. Well, right, that's, it's I, just that's taking gonna... out all of the the connective tissue that used to give it so much flavor and texture. Now it's it's pretty much uh, all rise all the time. Right. This is why, in if you're making a stew, you want a lot of connective tissue in it because the collagen and the connective tissue gelatinizes when you're braising, and it becomes unctuous. It becomes unctuous and and delicious. But I mean, what you're saying, like what the signal feature, I think of like what I've seen this this year in terms of the commentary online is just nothing but um nothing but uh complaining i mean just this this is sort of the year this it sort of jumped the shark in a sense or like this is the year where like everyone started relating to it uh as though it had jumped as though it had jumped the shark um and it but it was trying to deliver uh it was trying to deliver the kind of pleasures that it's been knocked before for not delivering right the the all this like oh all these chess piece moving around episodes and all the building up things and then there's one battle every year or one thing that happens and then you know episode 10 is always this kind of like mournful talky episode about how the world is all changed forever now and like it was just pow 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 it's like are you not are you not entertained are you i mean to, to some extent the complaints are like this is why we can't have nice things like <laughs> you know this has been a great season there's been ice dragons and you know multiple cool battles and lots of you know some still so, not no truly shocking deaths i don't think maybe little finger qualifies 
uh, is probably the most surprising death of the season. I think you're out of people. I think you're out of people to kill. I mean, killing Diana Rigg, I thought was, you know, I don't know. It just, it hurt me, but like, uh, there was no other way for that to go. So this, this was probably a bridge season in that respect because next season, since it's the last season, you can start really killing. Like, it's like the, the, the last uh, chapter of Harry Potter where they just started killing off people in the background. Ryan Weasley like, eats it, just puts like, a gun in his mouth, and it's like, I'm all done, Harry, I'm all done. Blows like up his to brains point, off the back of the secret chamber. Yeah. <laughs> like, up to this point, Sam Sam has been good to go. Like, he was not going to die. But you could totally see in, like, episode three, him just, like, catching a random crossbow bolt in the eye. Like, that could, is totally a thing that could happen in the next season, because, like, oh, his, <laughs> his job is spent. He read the book, and he said the thing to Braun, and now we're all set. Is is the whole plot of next season that there's just a guy going around or a girl going around with a crossbow just taking people out at random from off screen? And they're, like, trying to carry out this high fantasy, like, climax, but people just keep getting offed and they have to keep replacing people. And the last, the last thing in the show, yeah, the last thing in the show is going to be a montage of this set to the Johnny Cash song. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's it's one of the kids that they've been training up at Winterfell to use a weapon, and he keeps firing it accidentally. And then at the end, it'll be like, "Hi, we've had a lot of fun here on Game of Thrones, but this is we, this has been a PSA: <laughs> keep your weapons away from your kids." Use, uh, and if you have if you have a firearm in the house, make sure you use trigger locks and uh, other safety measures in order to you know it's locked away in the safe. One one of the sort of characteristic uh, uh, pleasure or the exploitative pleasures of Game of Thrones that it hasn't offered this year is a sort of HBO level uh, quality of TNA. Uh, I guess that that mantle has gotten transferred to Westworld uh, or something like that. Um, but it's, uh, you know, if you're used to, uh, if you're used to going, you know, yeah, when you see the little N on the screen at the beginning, <laughs> at the beginning you have of the high episode. standards. I go, yeah, when I see the BN. <laughs> no, I only, I only want the N. And by the way, it has to be, it has to be coupled with an SC. That's not just a sexual content, but a strong sexual content. But this season, <laughs> uh, all, all the N means is Jon Snow's butt. Uh, and that's uh, you know that that's uh, definitely a definitely a change. And I mean, uh, to a certain extent, it it mm, I don't know. I, this is something that happens because we know the characters better now, and you can't like you can't use sort of gratuitous nudity, nudity as a as a way of getting a rise out of people. Well, uh, sorry, poor choice of words. Uh, as a way of sort of <laughs> shocking people, um, you know. Uh, like doing something kind of sensationalistic because we have an investment uh, in, you know, in the characters and to a certain extent in the actors, right. As people. And so it's a, it's, it would, the dynamic, the dynamics of it uh, change when you feel like you've, you've developed this relationships, but also, um, uh, also like it's, uh, it's participate. The the show seems to be participating in the, uh, the larger Baywatch trend, (laughs) <laughs> right, the the larger sort of uh, Baywatchification. You, you'll recall uh, Baywatch, the uh, the film adaptation starring The Rock, w- w- was an R-rated comedy, um, sort of a raunchy comedy. Uh, with like sex things in it uh, and pretty girls and stuff, and uh, in in the past that would be like it would be boobs aplenty. Like even um, in recent memory, I don't know. The Wedding Crashers was a was a uh, movie that was surprising. That was like really jarring. Well, in it, that movie. yeah, and there was a lot of and actually they put it into I think the opening montage actually just kind of as a way of planting their flag and saying that like hey we're going back to the days of like Porky's. You know we're going back to 
to the days when when uh, the 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 heady days of Nuns on the Run, which had a a, a scene where the, <laughs> <laughs> the the Nuns on a Run quality movie by the way yeah, yeah exactly if you recall uh, hey Nuns on the One is where we get how do you how do you uh, make the sign of the cross spectacles testicles wallet and watch that's uh, you know I feel like that entered the culture at a, at a certain point but um, there's a scene in a uh, in a shower in a girls school just because they're just to to be there um and the uh the game of thrones doesn't do that now uh, baywatch didn't do that either it had uh it had uh, uh, penises instead of boobs like and and uh game of thrones is sort of like that also not like i i guess no no uh frontal nudity since hodor but um that's not there true. was the oh. there was the gray worm in Masande scene which was pretty graphic and i Definitely didn't see the front of Grey Worm. Might have been missing. I don't remember. Uh, but it's not, that was that, that was definitely more the male. Yeah, but that's service. the best. That's the best. Uh, you know, that's that's the best you got for as a right as TNA from from Game of Thrones this uh, this year. And I'm being, I mean, I'm being sort of purposefully crass about it to kind of hi- highlight the fact of of what's changed. But then everything is like the uh, the Theon kicking in the no nuts scene and the whole the whole thing at, with Tyrion in the last episode where it's like maybe it all comes down to Cox and the end but then but then it doesn't because theon uh does it and they, i mean this this seems to be are, are are we in a different are we in a different world uh are, are we in a different world genitalia wise uh in 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 game of thrones and will anything I mean, ever be the same i mean you have to imagine that for the creators like they're far more aware of the this is coming back to the, the new popularity of the show that like they know every time they show a boob or a butt or a penis, like it's the you know the the genit- the genitals that launched a thousand takes. Like every sex scene is going to be analyzed and get all sorts of nonsense. And like even if you try to tune that out, you have to imagine that the directors are like, let's just like let's just cut off a guy's head and move on with our day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the gi- right, right, exactly. It's going to be a super, a super kind of GIF extravaganza, right? But not so much that as it's like you know you're going to get you literally cannot please everybody. Like you're li- you're always going to get criticized from one angle or another whenever you do one of these scenes. Mm. Yeah, and and now that everybody is watching, you have to worry about pleasing pleasing everybody, and you can only please all the people some of the time. Do you think that there was some sort of broad misinterpretation earlier in the history of Christianity where, like, somebody was, like, St. Paul was, was like, oh, no more sex, please, because he had been, like, dealing with a lot of really raunchy stories or, like, people kept bringing it up. And he was like, oh, please, no more sex. Someone's like, okay, no more sex, done. That's a rule. And it's like, oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. Uh, it, it is interesting to, to re- reach a, a chaster world through emotional exhaustion. <laughs> It's, it's sort of uh, that's the Kurt Vonnegut way to age, I believe. It's how he would describe, like, because he says, "Greet impotence, like getting off a very unruly horse." Right? It's, uh, it's like, oh, thank God that's over. We don't have to deal with that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and game, yeah, Game of Thrones is uh, is is there, is totally there. Yeah, it's it's. I was I've been shocked by the number of dick jokes in the last two seasons, like, huh. and not not by their like flagrantness or by their sort of. Because a lot of them are very straight down the middle. They don't even curve to one side or the other, dick jokes. You know, that's like, hey, what do you call a dick? A dick. That's hilarious. Like, we had a scene like that this season. Where someone's like, hey, what's, what's a word for a penis? Dick. That's great. But what he said, what he said, what he said was literally, dick. 
I like it. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> High five. <laughs> I mean, if we were going to get a, if we were going to get fan service romance in this season, what? Where was Tormund and Brienne? Like, come on, guys. Do you think that's going to be the last? Do you think the story of Game of Thrones the, at the end of the day is going to be the invention of the high five? Because they've just been getting so much closer to it with every passing season. There's like more moments that beg for it. Eventually, they're just going to be like, boom. And then they're going to be like, wow, that was solid. <laughs> I, I mean, this is why I ended my my last recap, my last review with uh, hashtag Tormund lives. I'm a uh, I'm a Tormund truther. I you know I just don't believe the evidence of my eyes that that he's Who's dead. There? Can't melt ice. All right, can't melt ice beams. Yeah, it's, what, it's an inside job. Right. What? what yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the wall. Yeah. Eastwatch by the sea was an inside job. <laughs> Was Jordan trying to get in, or was he just shaking his head in shame at the rest of us? <laughs> no, no, I've I've been like uh, I've been, I've been sort of trying to get a dick joke in there, but each time I start to talk, I'm like, wait a minute, don't do that. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're doing better than uh, the writers on Game of Thrones. Hey, let's uh, let's uh, wind this down. Let's sort of begin our our final battle of of the living versus the dead, and uh, give some predictions for the for the end of the series. I, I, I mean, I guess like this is sort of like calling on people at the seminar table we could just go around in alphabetical order or something like that uh or we could uh continue to or we could uh do it by volunteers let's take volunteers first anyone want to uh, wait, wait, uh, can i ask a clarifying question yeah do we just say what do we think is going to happen on the tv show or are we also allowed to say like what we think might happen in the books that's going to be different from that well I, I i feel like i'm not the boss of you so you can say whatever <laughs> you know like it's not it's not my ass on the Iron Throne, you know? Uh, so you, you can say whatever yeah. you want. And since you obviously have an idea, how about you go first? Uh, nuts. All right. <laughs> so um, I think that most of next season is going to be uh, zombie fights punctuated with Cersei flouncing around. That eventually Cersei is going to come through at the last minute and like actually fight some zombies. Uh, but then in the very last episode or two, it's going to be the zombies are going to be defeated and we're going to return to King's Landing to settle the Game of Thrones once and for all. At that point, I think that Cersei is going to go like flagrantly crazy, threaten to blow up everything with wildfire that uh, that Jamie will end up having to kill her uh but that this will happen after their child is born which i think is going to be a daughter and i think that the the series will end with the like the last surviving lannister baby being spirited away to uh to essos just like the last surviving targaryen baby was spirited away to uh to essos sort of uh at the end of robert's rebellion so that's my thought as what what, what uh what the show has sort of queued up for us for the final season mm. um in terms of stuff from the book, I do have thoughts there, but I feel like it would be very long and very digressive, so I kind of I kind of hesitate to uh, to bore you all with it. Okay, fair. I mean, we can we could take that offline and put it together because <laughs> yeah. I think we both have very copious theories about the books that could go on and on and on. Definitely. I mean, um, uh, let me let me say this: there's a dropped plot thread from the books that it would be very peculiar if they tried to pick it back up now. But I I kind of miss, and I think it may have been fairly important to George R. R. Martin, which is that there is sort of a a cabal of people agitating against the supernatural. 
uh, in Westeros. Yeah. Varys is plugged into this very explicitly. Uh, the scene in the in the show where like Varys and um, and and Miss uh, Miss Sunday. Um, What's the red lady, you know, the, the fire witch are just sort of like chatting about both being foreign was very, very jarring because Varys has like dedicated his whole life to destroying people like her. Um, and uh, I feel like that is probably going to play a role in the book's final showdown. But I think that the show has moved on from it at this point. Well, there's almost a uh, like a um, not not what what's the one I'm thinking of? You know, it's the one that it's all stolen from. Uh, it has the Return of the King in it, Lord of the Rings, uh, right? Like, there's a sort of Lord of the Rings kind of uh, sense in which, like, we're ending the magical era a little bit, right? Like, we're going to uh, we're going to like normal uh, normalcy is being being established in the kind of the the previous um, part of the world, the the kind of the previous uh, age of the world that had magic and supernatural things in it are is over. But then again, that's what people had had sort of thought up to this point and then boom night king you know zombie zombies how you like me now uh and anyone else uh well no we got we got more projections yeah. for the end of the book uh, for the end of the series and uh and the end of the books what what, what do you think pete so i'll predict for for the show i'll try the show because the books it gets way too complicated for the show they've got to do the long night now they could end the show with like the second long night, because you know in the old man stories, there's a night that lasts a generation, and they could they could do they could end the show with a long night falling, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think that that the second half of the season is not going to be as rapidly in succession as the first half of the season is, and especially in say like episodes four, five, six in that range, there's going to be big time skips between episodes like of months or years where we're going to see how people have been surviving in the darkness uh i I still think that in the end at the end of the day game of thrones is an is a story about existential survival from the vietnam generation in which like war is revealed to be a sort of pervasive evil uh that only causes us to ignore more important problems but i don't think the show is going to be able to hit they might hit it in sort of a quick, tawdry way, but what they will be able to communicate is suffering on a grand scale. Uh, so I think that that's going to happen. I think that Sam is going to be really important, uh, but of course I also thought his father and brother were going to be. Um, but I also think that uh, the, we got we got to get to the high tower. That, that's the other prediction I'm going to make, that, that the high tower has to matter because you're in a situation where the, all of the uh, – and that's the place that's near the citadel. It's in Old Town where the lights are all going to go out in the whole world. And for some reason, this one group of people has built a giant torch um, that nobody understands. And, and I kind of feel like there's going to be a showdown there maybe with Euron. I think Daenerys will die before the end. I think she might even be killed by Arya uh, and, uh, or Jaime. But I think I think that Daenerys is going to die. And I think the lights are going to go out. And I think that at the end of the day, a lot of the positivity of the ending is going to be about Bran's ability to remember people and allow them to live forever in kind of memory and song rather than corporeally in their bodies. Oof. All right. Dark, <laughs> dark ending, dark ending from Pete. Ben, you have a you have a particular one. Yeah, I think Pete is a lot more, I guess, 
pessimistic, though I guess for the people that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, optimistic about the nature <laughs> of the ending of the show. Patrick Payne's uh, making it to the end. Patrick Payne yeah. is totally opening the first Planet Fitness. That's how that ends. <laughs> oh, he's he's a survivor. But I, I think they're gonna they're they're coasting towards a somewhat conventional ending. So so one thing that I think uh, the the one thing I the one place I'll plant my flag is I think the whatever important thing happens at the very end of this show, probably a big battle, probably involving some combination of, yeah, as you said, like Cersei's going to somehow get involved in the main fight and it's going to be the big, you know, the battle for, uh, what is it? The battle for Dawn, the, the equivalent of that. And I think it's going to be at Winterfell because one of the defining features of this series was scene one, episode one, I don't know if it's scene one, but uh, episode one, the crucial thing is that all of the main characters, except for Daenerys, are in Winterfell together. And then they all break apart in a big explosion of characters, and they never really come back together. And then the rest of the show has been all of them slowly coming back together. Uh, and so I think there's this idea of like a, a loop, a circularity to it. And Winterfell is a logical place to have the big battle against the zombies. Uh, I don't think they're going to take the time to get to have the zombies be able to fight all their way south. Um, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the final battles in King's Landing is that gives uh, Cersei a way to get in the battle a little more easily. Uh, but I think it's going to end in Winterfell. I think there is going to be there's going to have to be somebody making the big noble sacrifice. I don't think they have figured out a way to finish a story like this without having somebody making the uh, the heroic sacrifice. It's probably I think you're probably right that it's Daenerys. I think that makes more sense than a lot of the other characters. Uh, so yeah, I think she, she gives herself up. Maybe the bittersweet end is, I don't know, Jon Snow has to marry Cersei. There we go. That's, that's going to be my prediction. Is that <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, she, she, she says, I will help you in the battle. But now that I know that you're the Targaryen, I want to be, cause that was her whole thing. She wanted to be the queen. Uh, so now that I know you're the true Targaryen, I want to be the queen. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to force you to marry me. There we go. <laughs> Cersei and John both up there on the altar looking across being like, but I'm not related to this person at all. <laughs> exactly. How am I supposed to have sex now? There's a, a point of uh, point of clarification here. Can Brand see the future or can he just see the past and the present everywhere? Do we I, mean, I mean, do, do we know? being able to see the past? So can't you like, use the ability like, to see the past in order to see the future, especially if you can influence the past? I guess, because future I, you can send messages to present you? Oh, I guess I mean, so. Just, but the, the idea, like, is he like a heptapod, I guess, is my... Is my <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just... I don't think we've no, that's seen any future. <laughs> I don't think we've seen any. He hasn't had any visions of the future. Okay, because Ben, uh, like that hasn't happened. Brand says something in this season that didn't get a lot of, uh, didn't get a lot of play, but seemed important to me when I heard it. Which was he said, "When the long night comes," right? Which seems to be it seems to see that it, that it's a certain a certainty. So I'm I'm with Pete that there is going to be, uh, you know, there is going to be a sort of interregnum. In the right in the Game of Thrones, when you know Blue Cromwell uh, sort of ends the you know ends one dynasty and and <laughs> <laughs> right begins another, and his sort of communist zombies are you know like uh, having a, you know an egalitarian society of uh, egalitarian society of the the reanimated or or something like that. I uh, I'm gonna say I think that uh, I think that Arya. I think Arya kills Jamie. I, I there's something about that cuz Cersei is still on her her list and though Jamie I'm not sure I know I don't think Jamie 
specifically was ever on no. on her list but but I think it's sort of a way of of getting uh getting to her or something like that the the i mean the thing about the thing about Arya is that she's completely monkey balls insane now right and like she has the 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 just insane uh, psychopath eyes a lot of times and like don't let her sort of you know uh, uh slight rapprochement with with sansa fool you like there there's definitely like a little she's got she's been heavily traumatized by her experience and and uh rather than making her kind of somber and responsible as it's done with with uh sansa it makes her you know dangerous and crazy and liable to kill a, a whole room full of frays um so if it's not Jamie, it's going to be some like very ill-advised uh, thing that's that's uh, that's driven by that's driven by insanity. I hadn't thought about Danny not making it to the end, but it it uh, you know it seems you gotta they can't danny and john can't end up together because we're about to find out uh because uh, uh apparently when sam was not listening to gilly he was actually listening to to gilly so it's not sexist at all i guess um but the the uh you know uh you can't you got to get rid of you got to get rid of one of them because it can't be like hey we did it oops uh, that was a mistake let's let's all pretend this never happened so so one of them has got to go and it makes sense uh it makes more sense uh that it's that it's danny and they sort of hunkered down at winterfell and maybe the final maybe the final battle is there that does seem to have a pleasing symmetry to it all right those are our uh predictions if you would like to to chime in on the show notes for this uh episode and and uh, we've been having great game of thrones discussions in the comments on on our game of thrones unlocked recaps all season uh, go to Overthinking It, find this uh, this episode, click on show notes near the top of the page, and you'll find uh, uh, the comment section where we can all uh, trade theories. Spoiler alert for you know for those comments, we're going to do it. And if, if your comment gets buried uh, temporarily, it's because uh, uh, it's because I'm trying to keep spoilers off of the homepage of, of Overthinking It. But, but uh, head on over there, have the discussion with us. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll meet you there in the comments. Uh, thanks very much to uh, Ben and to Jordan for joining the Overthinking a Podcast. It was great to have you guys. And thanks very much to Pete for uh, uh, d- always, um, like uh, like Beric Dondarrion, you know, you, you, you keep coming back, Pete. And we <laughs> we uh, are, are so grateful. All right. Uh, this has been the Overthinking Podcast. We'll be back next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve.